0: This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Andreas By Forsby, postdoc researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies (NIAS), where I primarily focus on Chinese foreign and security policy. I'm delighted to be joined today by Xiangmin Shen who is a Paul Raider Rader Distinguished Professor at the Center for Urban and Global Studies at the Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. From 2007 to 2019, Professor Chen served as the founding dean and director of the Center for Urban and Global Studies, and he is also a visiting professor at Fudan University in Shanghai. He has co-authored several books, including a recently published one on the Belt and Road Initiative as "Evocal Regionalization. Professor Chen is actually a well-known guest speaker at NEAS, where he has given a couple of lectures, most recently in January, where he talked about his new book. Today, we have invited Professor Chen to talk about regionalization, infrastructural developments, and borderland spaces in relations between China and its Southeast Asian neighbors within the broader context of the Belt and Road Initiative, China's global infrastructure development and connectivity strategy, which was launched back in 2013. I think it's fair to start out by saying that the Belt and Road Initiative has recently experienced some headwinds, not only because Washington, as part of its deepening strategic rivalry with Beijing, has openly criticized the BRI and urged its allies and partners not to take part in it, but also because local populations and political elites and designated BRI partner countries have voiced growing concerns about various aspects of BRI-related projects. Since Southeast Asian countries are among the closest of China's Belt and Road Initiative partners, one could argue that the region constitutes sort of a litmus test for the Belt and Road Initiative. It's therefore very interesting to zoom in on Southeast Asian countries, especially those in China's immediate backyard, such as Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and Vietnam to take a closer look on some of the BRI-related projects in the region, as well as wider political and economic dynamics in relations between these countries and China. But uh, let me start by asking you, Professor Chen, and thank you very much for joining us today, which one of the Southeast Asian countries has become China's closest BRI partner from your perspective? Good afternoon,
1: everybody. Uh, Andrew, thanks for inviting me to be on this wonderful podcast. And it's so nice to be back with Nias for another uh, opportunity to sharing my uh, research. I think the questions, the background information you have just provided is very timely because we've been seeing the increasing efforts from China, from the national level, from the provincial level, from the local level really extend the BRI in a big way into Southeast Asia, particularly in mainland Southeast Asia. In other words, the countries of Myanmar, Laos, and Vietnam that border or share a long border uh, line with China. And I would say uh, Myanmar and Laos, and to a slightly lesser extent, Vietnam, are the three countries that have been engaged with an increasing number of cross-border infrastructure trade-related initiatives. For example, I'll mention one particular large-scale transport infrastructure project. That's the China Lost Railway that originates from the city of Kunming, the provincial capital of Yunnan province. By the way, Yunnan is a landlocked province, so it makes sense for China to thinking about to open up a long-access the sea or Yunnan province. And Laos also happens to be a small landlocked country. So the China Laos Railway, which covers over 400 kilometers, that originates from Kunming, comes down south, go through the border city of Mohan on the Chinese side of the border, and also Bolton, the Lao counterpart opposite town on the Laos side, and then we will run past Longbupong, Lanvian and arrived in Vientiane capital city of Laos. So this project started in 2015, even though the idea goes back a little earlier and the project has uh, been going on even through the pandemic of 2020. And I think the project is now on time or on schedule to be completed by the end of 2021. I think this will be a pretty significant project that will allow Laos to Obviously, potentially extend the railway to Bangkok and have an access to sea at the port of Bangkok. And it will help northern Loss, which is uh, less developed, and then the capital city region to develop some limited manufacturing, exporting more of agricultural products. For example, more recently, Loss has been able to use the connected highway that's been built and the upgrading the border towns between China and lost to export more bananas into Vietnam. So I would mention that is a very significant example that illustrates the kind of projects that have brought China and its neighboring countries in Southeast Asia closer together.
0: I agree. This is a very good example to start off with. But I was wondering if you could uh, perhaps mention some other of uh, the prominent projects that have taken place in China's immediate backyard among these five countries that I just mentioned. I mean, apart from the last China railway project, would you sort of emphasize any other particular projects that have been successful from your perspective, enhancing this regionalization process that you also discuss in your book? Well, in fact, I would
1: go a little further beyond the immediate border region to bring in a similar and yet different example. That's another train project, a high-speed train project that China is building between the capital city of Indonesia, Jakarta, and its tourist city of Bandung. So two train Mm -hmm. projects, very similar in terms of their starting time, both around 2015, both are projected to finish by the end of 2021 yet their uses their planned access connections are quite different. And the jakarta Bendong high-speed project, even though it's in an island nation, brings the country's two most important cities together. And it's the first high-speed train export project from China to Southeast Asia. It's very symbolically and functionally important for China to show off its completed bundled system of high-speed train design, production, service management, and maintenance. So in essence, it's a very significant project for China to execute. And when the high-speed train project is connected, and it's going to be able to shorten the travel distance between these cities from three-plus hours to 40 minutes, and come back to the China Lost Railway, once it is put into use, it will also shorten the two-day travel between this capital city of Ventan to the border with China to three hours. So I mentioned this pair of projects to give the listener a broader comparative sense of the kind of large scale projects that really represent and project a kind of building engineering capacity that has come through with the large scale infrastructure oriented approach of the BRI.
0: And I do think that these uh, examples that you have brought up so far are very interesting and they are very much reflective of uh, what's going on with the Belt and Road Initiative uh, in relation to Southeast Asia. And of course, connectivity being very much one of the keywords, and the Chinese government has seem to be very keen on regaining its historic role as the key economic and some would even say a key geopolitical actor in the region. So I was also wondering, in your view, to what extent are countries like Myanmar and Laos and perhaps also Cambodia, Thailand and Vietnam becoming more closely integrated with or even, uh, one might add, dependent on China because of these BRI-related infrastructural projects in the region? Or how do you see this playing out? I think this
1: uh, question follows uh, logically and sort of naturally from the previous uh, point of discussion. I think if you place these large-scale transport infrastructure projects in the larger context of China-ASEAN trade relationships, this can go can be traced back to the China-ASEAN free trade area, which was signed, established, in 2020 operational. And I think that large scale trade agreement brought down the tariffs between the two sets of trading partners from 9.8% to 0.1%. So that was a very big deal to strengthen the overall commercial relationship between China and ASEAN. Now, if you look at much more recent data to trace forward, between 2010 to 2020, just a decade. And you see, again, ASEAN, Southeast Asia, has maintained its largest trading relationship with China. In other words, ASEAN has been China's largest trading partner for the last 10 years. And within that larger context, I would also single out Vietnam since you also mentioned Vietnam. Last year, actually, Vietnam rose to be Number six, largest trading partner with China with the registered value of bilateral trade of 730 billion U.S. dollars, 7% growth annually from the previous year. So the macro data also confirm a growing and closer economic relationship between China and Southeast Asia. I think the other part of your question also uh, makes a lot of sense. What does this mean in terms of interdependency, in terms of power relationships? And I would say on that question, within ASEAN or the ten asean countries, there's a quite bit of a variation among the countries in terms of how they view China. Now, if you look at the poorest countries, lost, Myanmar, Cambodia, I think there's greater interest on the part of the three governments to work with China, BRI-related projects. I think the Philippines and Vietnam is a little more cautious, even though their larger economies and the economic relationships have been very strong, particularly Vietnam. So there's a little bit of competition as well between Vietnam, and China for uh, labor-intensive manufactured products, particularly the pandemic last year that have also pushed a little bit more of the relocation of companies, manufacturing companies, investments in factories to move from China, particularly the River Delta in southern China, to Cambodia, to Vietnam, and a little bit to Myanmar as well. Another part of my research uh, focuses on some of these factory movements, relocation from southern China to Cambodia. So you can look at all of these across a variety of spatial skills, all the way from the large trading block relationship with China and down to specific cities and places where there's also growing private Chinese investment. They may be small scale. They're entrepreneurs. But they are also making a difference to extending and strengthening China's business connections with Southeast Asia. They may not be directly and strongly connected to the BRI initiative from the state-centric point of view, but they also bring both opportunities and risks to Southeast Asia in terms of their mixed effects on local employment, on the environment. competition and other kinds of intended unintended consequences.
0: All right. so now you've already talked a lot about these growing interdependencies between uh, Southeast Asia and China. And we all know that the coronavirus pandemic has had a disruptive effect on collaborative projects around the world, of course, including the Belt and Road Initiative, where, for instance, uh, construction of the last China railway line that you brought up earlier has been uh, temporarily brought to a halt as far as I've learned. Some would argue that the heydays of the Belt and Road Initiative were already behind us before the pandemic emerged early last year. But do you share this view? And to what extent do Southeast Asian countries like Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand compete with one another to attract Chinese BRI related investments today, from your perspective?
1: Again, that's a really uh, nice follow up question. I would forgot to mention another much more recent momentum that has going to further strengthen, you know, China-ASEAN relationship, and that's the RECP, the Regional Economic mm-hmm. Comprehensive Partnership that was agreed by 15 countries, the ASEAN-China plus the other four, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and South Korea. So that's already created the world's largest trading block. And so that's an interesting example because it really uh, reflects from the macro perspective on your question. And some scholars would say, well, you know, it is sort of a China-led, China-driven initiative. But most would agree. I think that's much more of a ASEAN initiative. Some have called it the ASEAN middle power diplomacy. It'll be very interesting to see uh, what RECP will do on top of what Wordy have talked about. Now, getting back to your specific question about BRI, I would say that BRI has gone through a kind of evolution. And I would say since maybe the second forum in 2019, BRI kind of has entered what I or some others would call a BRI 2.0. There were lessons that were learned, I think, from the Chinese side, from a government perspective, with regard to sensitivities that matches with national local conditions Some of these projects may or may not work very well or fit very well with the local ecological environmental environments of the host countries. And also some of the projects may be too big. The demand may or may not be there to justify some of these projects. I think China has learned to implement the new phase of BRI in a more cautious manner. And I see also a corresponding response from the host countries within Southeast Asia to deal with China on new BR projects in a more selective and cautious way. And here I'll give you another example, again, related to cross-border transport train connection. And obviously, you know, China has been advancing this bigger idea of China Myanmar economic corridor, which was uh, mutually agreed to in 2017, and a key component. Of that economic corridor is a cross border large scale railway, again starting from Kunming, comes into Myanmar through the border, connects to the central Myanmar city of Mandalay, and then continues on in two different directions. One goes straight south to Yangon, the poor city, and the other pivots west to the port city of Chiaupo on Myanmar's west coast, on the Bay of Bengal or the eastern part of the Indian Ocean. Recently, even though both sides have agreed to have a Chinese company launch a feasibility study for that railroad, but so far the feasibility study has been confined only from the border town of Musa on the Myanmar side to Mandalay without including the western line going to Chiaupo. So that's a sign of caution on the part of Myanmar of not jumping all at once into this very large, expensive, and potentially risky project in sense of uh, becoming maybe indebted uh, to a higher degree uh, than just fine. And I think China lost railway also potentially as a risk because it is so costly. In fact, the overall construction cost. Accounts for almost half of lost GDP. So, what does that mean if you borrow too much money for such a huge project that may or may not be justified in terms of what capacity, passenger
0: freight that it can bring across the border? Further to that, I would like to bring up some of the recent surveys conducted by the Pew Research Center, which suggests that negative views of China are on the rise in most countries around the world, including in Southeast Asia. Some would argue that the BRI constitutes one of the cornerstones in China's soft power push throughout that region. So I'm curious to know to what, if any extent, the rollout of the BRI projects have affected popular perceptions of China in Southeast Asia. And you've mentioned quite a few of those specific projects already. But I'm also curious as to what extent these specific projects uh, actually affect the local population to an extent that they might contribute to these growing negative perceptions of China throughout also this region. And moreover, can the Chinese government take any specific measures to turn the tide, so to speak, of these growing negative perceptions from your perspective?
1: Yes, I think there's always been a kind of a range of views of China in Southeast Asia. I think the Pew survey you referred to have consistently included countries like Indonesia, the Philippines, and the Vietnam. But I'm not sure that it has included Laos, Myanmar. And Cambodia, certainly not on a consistent basis. So if you look at the three larger countries, the three more developed countries, Indonesia, Philippines, and Vietnam, I think the view among the populace is kind of a split, right? Roughly between, I would say, 50 and 50 in favorable versus unfavorable views of China. I think on economic ties with China, however, the views tend to be more favorable than China's military posture. It makes sense, right? There's greater interest in developing strong economic connections, but not really accepting China's powerful, impactful position militarily, and also to the extent that the territorial implications of the military posture. But I think people in Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar. Uh, tend to view China, again, in economic terms, more favorably than Vietnam and the Philippines. Partially, I think that's a result of maybe not having, you know, these disputes with China. A little bit of the land disputes go way back to the Yuan and the Ming Dynasty for laws in Myanmar. I think China, you know, in the past occasionally claims a little bit of a land going back to the Yuan And I think for Cambodia, I think it goes back to the Ming Dynasty. But I don't think none of that land, overland, border disputes matters at all. And in fact, it hasn't really shown up, at least in my uh, regionally, locally uh, focused research. So I would draw a distinction between two different sets of Southeast Asian nations with regard to their geographic location vis-a-vis China. For example, if you look at loss. In Denmark, China is a huge neighbor, right? It's bound by geography, by geopolitics, increasingly bound by very strong economic relationships. So I think they're more sensitive. They recognize they may have to live with a great neighbor. Well, I think for Vietnam, for the Philippines, for Indonesia, the surrounding conditions that bear on how people view China are quite different. And I think logically so, we should keep that in mind as we try to better understand how China position itself vis-a-vis each of these countries. And the other point I would say in responding to your particular question, I think there's also a split between how government officials view China vis-a-vis the people on the ground, so to speak. For example, in Cambodia, the Prime Minister Hong Sen is very close to China and particularly with its close relation with Xi Jinping. But if you talk to people in Cambodia, who work for the China-invested factories, and I think you get a maybe a less favorable, less optimistic, less blowing view, but at the same time, I think there's also practical economic benefits for some of these private investment from China in both Cambodia and Myanmar. You know, with regard to local job creation, I'll give you an example. Again, in northern Myanmar, central Myanmar, where China has been engaged in plantation agriculture, investing in watermelon, growing production. And the wages that's offered to the local workers are, you know, three, four times more than they would otherwise earn in the villages. So there's interest among these places, villages, communities in country like Myanmar, to develop this kind of micro-level entrepreneurial kinds of connections. So that's a little bit shielded from the larger geopolitical dynamics that often color and influence how people view bilateral relationships. So I would draw, again, a bit of analytical distinction in terms of how your approach
0: the topics and what scale. And now that you did mention Myanmar, I would like to finally turn to the recent military coup in uh, that country, which has been met with strong condemnation from the international community. The Chinese government is taken, let's just call it a very cautious stance, uh, and together with Russia, prevented the United Nations Security Council from adopting any strong measures against the new military regime. How do you explain China's position? Is it principal opposition to international interference in the other countries' internal affairs, or rather as a pragmatic stance to protect its investments and interests in Myanmar that you just uh, touched upon?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very uh, timely and uh, last question really to sort of end the conversation. I think it's also very reflective of the broader challenges, I think, facing both sides in terms of the degree and the ways in which BRI-related projects from the top down and also private investment from the bottom up, right? So where do they meet in the middle? I think China, again, is trying to walk a very fine line between its promise, its principle of non-interference with other countries' domestic affairs, and also adopting a very practical and transactional strategy of doing business in other countries especially in developing countries where you have either a very strong and authoritarian, maybe military-backed state, and also competitive politics, democratic kind of a system that also has a longer history connection to post-colonial. The state is relatively weak, right? So China brings a very strong political backing behind its economic project. I think that's been pretty clear both in Asia and in Africa. But here, there's also a dilemma based in China, because again, I draw there two very different kinds of Chinese economic influence and investment in these countries. One is really the state capitalist, state-owned enterprises, large-scale investment. On the other hand, there's also the small-scale, informal, private investment. China has relatively little control over the latter in terms of how this investment is made and how aware or sensitive they are to local economic conditions. Recently, there's an example in laws. China is trying to, again, working with a law government to set up a special economic zone in a tourist city which poses potential threats and risks to the ecology, to the tourist industry. So there's a very mixed communal responses to that project. But I think for a project like that, the Chinese government has relatively little control over that kind of project. So that means that uh, if you look at uh, the overall picture of Chinese presence in Southeast Asia and in other parts of the developing world, and you have really a bifurcation, I think most of much of the research tends to focus on the large scale state capitalist investment, but not recognizing that there's also a lot of local level issues, right? Sometimes falls below the radar screen. For Myanmar, how to respond to that? I think closer ties between the two countries, again, as I said earlier, brings forth both risks and opportunities. China has big plans in Myanmar, but yet Myanmar is much more cautious. Maybe it's learned lessons not to be fully embraced by China. So in that sense, I think it takes both countries to recognize what are the ways of doing some of this more in a mutually beneficial manner. Whether, for example, the military takeover of the government right now, how long is it going to last, I think will have a strong effect on the next stage of China proposed large-scale project, particularly the china Myanmar Economic Corridor. So it's a little bit early to see how that will play out. But I would say in general, it's another example that proves China's cautious and methodical approach to strike a very fine balance between not getting involved and be seen as politically intrusive, and at the same time, try to get the practical economic business strategies to work across from the government down to the local level. And I think particularly in the case of Myanmar, another layer of challenge, another complication is the ethnic armed groups in the northern region of Myanmar bordering China. China also has to navigate with these groups between them the government and now maybe the military. So there's a triangular relationships. China, local ethnic groups that opposes the Myanmar government and what the Myanmar government officially is interested in doing for its own development. purposes to be more closely engaged on these larger projects. But I would say the cross-border small-scale trade, particularly jade, fruits that I have studied more recently, will go on because it's driven by a very different set of local people-to-people, maybe social capital, geographic proximity, natural markets, commodity exchanges. That has been going on much earlier. For much longer period of time than the BRI projects. In fact, they have been going on long before BRI came on board. So I would again draw another distinction and to illustrate how complex a kind of situation and that's
0: unfolding as we speak. Before we close the podcast, I would like to give you a chance to draw attention to something you are currently working on. If you would like to share something with us that we have not already talked about in the conversation today. I don't know if you want to share something with us from your current projects.
1: Well, thank you for that opportunity. You know, I would briefly draw attention to the new book that I have completed on the BRI, really highlighting and stressing sort of the regional dimensions and consequences of BRI. And most scholars can have studied the BRI as China's state-directed geopolitical, geoeconomic, and even geocultural strategy for advancing China's global interest. But I think there is really a greater need to take more of an urban, regional approach to look at BRI from the ground up. And that's what I have tried to do in this book. So very briefly, the book discusses and explains how BRI affects three large macro processes of globalization, urbanization, and development from this in-between middle regional level. And also bring in the particular position and role of key cities. Particularly those cities that are located on the borders that bring these different territorial, economic, geopolitical dimensions together, and it has three case studies. I talked a little bit briefly from the China Southeast Asia a connection, but there's also a chapter that deals with China's overland freight train connection to Europe across Eurasia, and also there is for comparative purposes, comparative implications. I've included a chapter looking at a similar dynamics of both a train connection between the capital city of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, and the port of Djibouti, where China also invested a lot to upgrade the port capacity, but also building the industrial park, special economic zone, and also upgrading the older city of Djibouti city. So the book really has a kind of, a, I would say, integrated coherent framework looking at uh, local and intra-local transborder connections in both Europe, China, China, Southeast Asia, and also within Africa. So uh, I hope there will be interest in a book like that. And I would like to close on that note by drawing attention to a kind of alternative approach to the study of BI and also its increasingly important broader
0: implications. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Chen, for sharing these insights with us today. You've been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast with me, and, Fortby, and Professor Shangmin Chen from the Center for Urban and Global Studies at the Trinity College. So thank you so much for taking time today to talk to us. And I'm looking forward to doing other interviews on the Nordic Asia podcast anytime soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for the invitation. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.